Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 57 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So as I begin the episode, I can see myself, I'm looking at myself in the computer as I record on Zoom for those who like to watch, and I have this scratch on my chin. I'm going to be staring at it the whole time. When Jack Jack nurses, sometimes he'll caress my face, and sometimes he gets overzealous with the caressing, if you know what I mean. Little baby fingernail stab right on my chin. So for those of you that can't see me, what a meaningless intro to my, to my episode. This season is a bit trickier to record than I thought, and I think I've actually addressed that issue in prior episodes here. I'm talking about a very, very wonderful slash dramatic time in my life. I guess that would describe all of my life, really. Who am I kidding? I finished up now with middle school and the beginning of high school and then 10th grade and 11th grade, and now here we are in podcast land in the summer of 1980, coming to the 80s now and moving on into my senior year of high school where my junior year was sort of solidifying all the growth that I had made my sophomore year. My senior year will represent how just when you think everything is okay, it can all blow up in your face. As an abuse victim waiting for the, the next abusive episode to happen, all I could do as a child to try to control what was happening to me was to think up things I had done that made it happen. So if I let my guard down, if I forgot, I allowed myself to be too happy. Remember a couple of times I had a certain pair of underpants that I, you know, luck of the draw, had to happen to be wearing. So I burned those, made sure I never never wear them again. If I never wore these underpants again, it will never happen. You know, the things that a little child will do in their mind, trying to make sense of something that makes no sense. And so my outlook on life has often followed that. Whenever I get too happy or let my guard down, I always assume that that's the reason things go bad. Sometimes life is just timing. It's up and down. And of course, your guard gets let down when you're happy. That's being happy. It doesn't make bad things happen. I have spent my life, really my life, trying to figure out this mindset and really understand that, that it isn't true. I refer back to that book all the time, The Body Keeps the Score, because so much of what was written in there describes me perfectly. And I know that as a trauma survivor, I go back and back and back and back to recreate, recreate situations that I can then try to control. <laughs> it's how I've become comfortable, I guess, in an uncomfortable way. So by the time my junior year finished, I had established myself as a state champion. I had made a pretty big jump in the fall of cross country, but in spring track, won state titles in the 800 and the 1500. Our relay team was successful. We made it to New England's. I was a top finisher in New England's. You know, I had unbelievable success and everybody knew who Barbara Higgins was in the running community. I also had some road racing experience behind me. So as the summer of 1980 came along, this would be my second year as a runner. I trained super high mileage, 55 to 65 miles a week, which <laughs> sounds like a lot now. It didn't feel like a lot at the time. I loved it. And I ran several road races in and around 
New Hampshire. One of my favorites in the summer of 1980 was a 10K race that still exists in Rye, New Hampshire called Saunders at Rye Harbors and a restaurant. And I ran really well. I actually still have my personal best 10K time there, 35-20, I think it was. It wasn't the distance I ran very much, but I just loved running and I loved all the people that I met in the running community. So as I had mentioned before, my junior year was also a bit of a processing year for Science Guy. You know, I wasn't willing to commit. I don't really even know if willing is the right word. I wasn't able to commit to an actual relationship. The whole thing was too confusing and we couldn't do anything or go anywhere in public. It was, it was a farce and an awful thing and it should never have happened. And I had, you know, two full years to be a high school student with this teacher in the building. So by the end of my junior year, Science Guy was really pretty much just my track coats. While we still had, you know, I suppose the word would be chemistry. I don't even know what it was. There was some connection there, which is logical. We had slept together. I was trying very hard to, to live just the life of a normal high schooler. I say that a bit tongue in cheek because at the same time, I was desperately falling in love with this guy named Jay. He owned a running store in Concord. And I got a part-time job at the running store. And I went running all the time with the running club that he was a part of. And a lot of the road races I went to, there were road races that he was at. And again, this was another situation where I was getting into a relationship that really was over my head. And he wasn't all that comfortable with it either, quite honestly. I would not classify Jay as somebody that looked around for young girls. He had a very hard time with my age. We finally ended up having a serious, you know, an actual relationship after I graduated from high school. But in the summer before my senior year, I had developed really, really just a bit of an obsession. And, you know, it wasn't unhealthy in the sense that I didn't stalk him and all this, you know, it wasn't like that. But like anyone, I drew little hearts and put his name in it. And, you know, when I look back in my running logs to that time, I'm, I love Jenny, I love Jenny. It's kind of funny to look back on it now. It was just one of those things that makes perfect sense when you look at my life and my experiences as a whole. I was working that summer at Weeks. It's a restaurant. I was a waitress. I ran road races. I babysat. I painted houses with Mary Fagan, the half fast paint company, Mr. Landry and Mr. Hobrick. And that was fun. And I just tried to stay busy. Always, always the mission of my life was to try to stay busy. More deeply established my friendships with both my running friends and my track friends. And I really felt for the first time in my life, relatively normal. I, I didn't feel like I was mental. I didn't feel confused, any more than normal. I, I really entered my senior year very, very different than I entered my sophomore year two years prior. I remember the first day of school, I was all dressed up, very preppy. I made my friends drop me off at Jay's house to run in and show my outfit. He was still asleep because I wanted him to see that I was pretty. By the end of the summer, we had connected and become intimate, you know, <laughs> nobody knew. Again, it was one of those secret things. I had this boyfriend, he's 10 years older than me. And when you're 17 and 27, that's much more significant than 27 and 37, for example. I know lots of married couples that are several years apart. Kenny and I are eight years apart. 10 years in later, later life, it's still a significant chunk of time, but it isn't like it is when you're 17 and 27. And so the whole thing was tricky. My parents were a bit in the dark, although they knew I spent a lot of time there. I think they sort of just stayed out of it a little bit. And again, my mother was working lots of hours. Jonathan and Johanna, they were John and Jody then, were finishing up Kimball School and about ready to head off into Runlet. So school started, cross country started. We had a new cross country coach. It was no longer Chris. Chris had left Concord High and we had Cindy Sivanen. And 
as undertrained as we were with Chris, we were unbelievably overtrained by Cindy. I think she had the best intentions, and I think she learned a lot in the years that she was the cross country coach at Concord High School. But I was running 50 miles a week. I didn't need a lot of training. I could have done not one speed workout ever all fall, raced just fine. But that first week of practice, we did speed Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's like three big workouts. And, and I wasn't one to not go fast. And so I ran hard. And I, Got fast, really fast. <laughs> I was running personal best times almost from the beginning. And cross country was now 5K. So they were much more comparable to road races and other times. And I was in the mid, low to mid 17 minute range all fall, sometimes 18 minutes. If I had an 18 minute race, I felt like I had failed. I knew I was getting fit quickly and I had some uncomfortable feelings around it. I just felt like I should feel at the end of the season. And any of you listening who are athletes, who have competed in a season, you know what I mean? You Everything gears toward the end of the season when you're mentally and physically and emotionally ready. Can't be that way all the time. It's just a, it's like an ice cube is gonna melt. I had this little underpinning, this little undertoad, so to speak, this nervous tummy all the time. I remember that summer before going back to school, a meeting a man named Tom Dowling. I've spoken about him before. He was an unbelievable running coach and he lived on the seacoast. And he ended up coaching somebody who would be my big rival my senior year, a girl named Kathy Skiro now Kathy O'Brien, she went on to be, become a two-time Olympian in the marathon. She was just a late grader. Nobody had heard of her, but I remember going to a running camp that he did in Keene. It was out in Western New Hampshire and going running with all these great runners, Laura Lawler, Cindy Collins, and all these amazing runners that all sort of congregated together and found each other outside of school. And Tom told me about her, watch out. She's going to be amazing. Watch out. You know, that just made me anxious and nervous. I'd also gone to a running camp, Camp Foss, and he was in charge of it. And that was an amazing experience. I didn't stay overnight. I sort of just went and ran a couple of times. I, I never really was a go away to camp kind of person. I've mentioned that before as well. As the season progressed, one of our first meets was in Dover, where it had been actually a year prior. It was a new course in a new location, and the course was very poorly marked. And I was way ahead, way ahead of Kathy. I was very nervous about the race. I was way, way ahead of her. I ran way up on top of this mountain and, and I got lost. I didn't know where I was. And I was screaming, yelling, help, help. In hindsight, I should have just, just stopped and walked, but I was just so desperate to finish. And so by the time I found my way back on the course, I was way back with all these other runners on my team. I sprinted and sprinted and sprinted and I just ran out of time. And she beat me by like 10 meters. And of course, for all of them, they really thought that she beat me. You know, I went way off course. I was so cried and cried, like these gut-wrenching sobs. Sometimes I was very emotional like that. And I remember... The two other girls on my team saying that she got lost. She was not behind. She came out behind us. And, you know, it was one of those things that was just, you know, just a nightmare. And it just sort of solidified for me that cross country was going to be bad. And I couldn't, I couldn't come out from under it. It was just this panicky, awful feeling. <laughs> I feel yucky remembering it. Lost a year prior. I'd come second to a woman named Sandy Anderson, a girl. She ran for Pembroke. And I didn't like getting beaten. I just felt like I was this good runner. I should be the best. And when I would find myself behind others, I would dry heave and I would get this horrible upset stomach. It was, you know, managing your nerves as a runner to be very, very difficult. My senior season sort of marched along and I ran my culminating race, really the best race of my season that year was at the end of September. It was right after the Manchester Invitational, which we never went to. It was against all the Manchester schools and had to run against Marty. So we decided ahead of time that we would just tie. That we didn't want to race each other. We would just tie each other. And we did. We stayed together the whole first mile. And I gave her advice and she gave me advice and this and that. And then we ran by Coach Ludi and he was like, what are you doing? You need to go now. 
you know, again, hindsight, it would have just made sense to not make that into a big race, but of course I did what I was told. And so I took off and I beat her by a ton. She rightly so just, she was smart enough to let it go. It's a dual meet, it doesn't matter. And when I finished the race, all these people gathered around me and I was just peeing my pants furiously, leaning on a fence. And a lot of people, just people came over to congratulate me and she was so angry. And when she came through the finish line, she, she was swearing at me and screaming and yelling, you traitor. Well, she was really, really upset and hurt. And there was nothing, there was no way out of it. I had done a terrible thing. And I either should never have agreed to tie with her or I should have just ignored the coach. But I, I did both. And I ran 17, 19 that day, pretty fast time. A month later, it's class L's and there, there they are at Deerfield Park. And it was this rainy, rainy, cold day. And we'd stood on the starting line forever and ever and ever. And I just didn't feel good. I had a nervous tummy. I went out running the morning before. I just, I just had the worst feeling ever. I got real cold. I got really, really cold in the race and I didn't function well. The race started up, up at the top and it went down. So you know, Coach Ludi again told me, go out hard. The only way you're going to beat her is to go out as hard as you can. And so I did. And I tanked. So I ended up getting third. Kathy won, Marty got second, and I got third. I may have even been out kicked for fourth. It was, it was a bad day, and I was devastated. I actually remember going home and going to a party at Joe Hardy's house. He worked at Weeks. <laughs> Back when Conquer Lover was a thing, it was all my waitress friends, and we went to a party. And, you know, usually I didn't go to parties during the season, but I was just upset and wanted to get out of my house. The meet of champs was no different. A week later, it was the same thing. I, I think I got third both times, and Kathy and Marty were ahead of me and then me. What I also remember is that after the Class L race, Marty called me on the phone. I pick up the phone. Hello. No caller ID back then. She beat us. You know, and, and so we talked on the phone for a long time, Marty and I, about Kathy and, and all that. So New England's came and it was at, again at Darefield Park, three races in a row there. And Marty was real sick. She had bad bronchitis and couldn't run. And so it was just Kathy and myself. So once again, I take off, you know, and lead the race. And Kathy was smart. She started off easy and worked her way up. And she ended up beating me. And so I got second. So I was second in New England. I mean, it's hard to be, it's hard to feel bad about placing second in the New England cross country championships, but I did. I felt bad. And I felt like that was my chance and I have it now. And finishing that season and just really wanted to put it to bed. My parents took me and I brought Suzanne Ward along to Van Cortland Park in the Bronx to run the Kinney Shoe Company cross country championships. It was a high school championship race. And I got sick, threw up, threw up, threw up. It was awful. I got sick in the night, actually, threw up in the hotel. It was a disaster. I just couldn't put cross country away. Another thing that I did that fall, probably didn't help my energy level, is I went out for the fall musical. The musical's in the spring now at Concord High School. But when I was in, in high school, it was in the fall. And it was Oliver. And I had been at Oliver in sixth grade. And I loved the play. And so I thought, what the heck, I'll audition. Not thinking I would get a part at all. Actually, if I did get a part, I thought I would just be in the chorus. Well, I got the part of Widow Porny, Mrs. Bumble, this cranky old woman that marries the man that runs the orphanage. I had a solo. I got to sing a duet with, with Mr. Bumble, and his name was Gene Losey. <laughs> Hi, Gene. You know, it was the only play I'd ever auditioned for. I'd never, I'd never auditioned for a play before, and I got this, not a lead, but a, you know, a sub-lead role with a solo. And so I spent every afternoon at track. Wednesdays, I had dance. Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, I had theater. Fridays and Saturdays, I worked. So Sunday, I had off. I was never, ever home. I was always someplace, and I was not well-rested. In hindsight, I can't regret doing that play because it really connected me to theater in a way that has been very meaningful in my life. That was like a really good part of the fall. So New England's and the theater, the show, were all about the same time. I had a race in the morning and a show at night. 
And I had a wonderful time in Oliver and I got a couple of standing ovations and it was a side of me that, that I didn't know existed. It was also really fun to sit with the theater people in the cafeteria. <laughs> it was just fun. You know, every table has their little idiosyncrasies and, you know, and I felt like I could go back and forth. I also remember all of my track friends coming to watch that play and I was nervous. And I, you know, I sang and everything else. And, and I remember them all saying, I wish I was brave enough to go out for a play. And that always brings me back again and again. I brought it up in the, in the blog that I wrote today. My last conversation with Molly about fitting in and wanting to be in a group and actually being a part of every group. There were people that were so locked into their place in the big picture of the senior class, whatever group they were in, whatever identity they had, they couldn't branch out. And I believe I spoke with Molly about that, that one of the best things I ever did as a senior was to go out for a play. And I wasn't just with my athletic friends now or the popular group or the jocks or whatever. I was with all those theater nerds. And it was such, such a profound experience for me. When November was over and all the races had been gone to and everything was done, then it became December and everything could settle down a little bit. And it did. As I said before, I was spending a lot of time with Jay. And, and of course, that always involved sneaking out somehow or saying I was one place and being someplace else. This Next piece of my senior year is tricky, and I'm, and I'm a little bit scared about sharing it, but I also know that if I'm going to do a podcast about my life and all that I've gone through, then I can't leave out the parts that make me nervous or uncomfortable. And I know there'll be a lot of judgment in this story. So if you're a judgy kind of person, if you think what I shared dooms me to a life in hell, then pray for my salvation. I had a pretty rough December or January. So as I said before, I was involved with Jay now that cross country was over and I had all this free time, we were able to spend a lot more time together. And I remember going over there early December, or maybe right after Thanksgiving, like right around late Thanksgiving, we spent several hours together. We all know what we did, spending our several hours together. And I remember walking home because he only lived up the street from me and thinking to myself, hmm, I wonder where I am in my cycle because I was not yet on the pill, which I probably should have been on the pill. We used condoms. We always used protection of some sort, but you're a bit of a mishap, so to speak here. But I remember feeling a bit anxious about it. And so I took a bath. I thought, okay, I can take a bath, really clean myself up. I won't get pregnant. And, you know, I, and all I did jumping jacks, all these silly things, right? That you think will make a difference and they don't. And so sure enough, tick-tock, tick-tock, plot goes by. The day for my period comes and goes. And I'm in a bit of a frenzy, a lot of a frenzy, because I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. So Nowadays, you go to the pharmacy and you get a stick and you pee on it and you know within minutes that you're pregnant. You don't even need to be late for your period. When I was a senior in high school, the first time you thought you might be pregnant was when you didn't get your period. You're already up to where you're going to get your period. And normally you think you're going to, because oftentimes symptoms. So I had tender boobs. I had, you know, crampy. I've, I felt just like I was going to get my period and it didn't. Days kept going by and by. Pretty soon I'm one week late. Now I'm two weeks late. So when you think of period to period, two weeks late, that's about six weeks. And that's how they mark pregnancy time, actually, from the date of the last period you had. Even though there might not have been a baby made yet, those weeks between your period and conception count in the overall age of the baby. I got really scared. I shared all this with Jay and said, I'm really nervous. And so he went to the pharmacy and bought a pregnancy test. And in those days, you peed in a little cup. Then you had to mix these things together and it had to sit for two hours. And if there was a circle in the middle of this cup of urine, this clear Thing. And if it made a circle somehow at the bottom, that meant yes. And so I stop at his house, I do all this, I go to school. I was just petrified. And so at this point, I had not told anyone. It was period three, and there was a payphone in the cafeteria. Again, no cell phones. You know, I had my change. 
So I put money in and I called James and he was home. He hadn't gone into the store yet. And I said, hello. And he goes, well, buckle up because you're pregnant. And I just hung up the phone. I would say, I just started sobbing, like sobbing, hung up the phone. I was in utter panic, just in utter panic. So I think it was Bridgie. My friend Bridge ran up to me, just ran right up to me. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And so I remember going to the girls' bathroom with these two and just sobbing, like, what do I do? What do I do? And it was just over everyone's head. And no one talked about it. I didn't even know any of my friends were having sex yet. And when the school year started, we were splitting time between Runlet Middle School and Concord High School. So the high school kids went in the morning from like six in the morning till 11. And the middle schools went from noon to six because the high school wasn't finished. They had built a new, new addition to the high school and it wasn't ready. We had running in the morning and then, and then lunch in the middle of the day. And so our afternoons were free. And so I had all this free time and all these things were going on. So we had these split sessions. And I remember lunches were weird. You're eating lunch at like 8.30. And so somebody would always go and do a, a coffee run. You know, Dunkin' Donuts was just, takeout coffee was like this new big thing. And so we drink coffee. And I remember it was the fall of my senior year before any of my group of friends even talked about who's had sex and who hasn't. It was like this, you just didn't talk about it. And I know probably, probably not talk about now, except that I feel like it's such a prevalent area of conversation that everybody does talk about it. But I, I thought I was the only one. So I didn't say a word. I did not want to be the only girl that was having sex with somebody. Back to the devastating news. So it was January. It was just after Christmas vacation and, and it was January. And so I was just wrecked. I was totally, utterly wrecked. I didn't know what to do. So I left school. I, I mean, I had my mother come get me and I went down to the running store and, you know, what are we going to do? So it was pretty clear that I didn't want to have a baby. And I know that <laughs> now that I've lost a couple of babies, I feel very differently about this, but but I was 17 years old, utterly unprepared for anything I was involved. This doesn't excuse anything, but it certainly does explain things. And I had a group of friends who just loved me and were afraid for me and wanted me to be okay. And so I decided to terminate the pregnancy to have an abortion. So again, there was no feminist health center. There were no sort of quote unquote abortion clinics. Physicians would perform the procedures in their offices. And so not every office performed abortions. I went to my mother. I told my mother, boy, did we have a big fight. That was a slap across the face fight. It was mad, really, really mad. And I think probably scared. And I think she saw a remake of her own senior year, which produced my older brother. That was 1959 into 1960. So, you know, 21 years later. But I was firm in my, in my resolve. Jay paid for it. He came up with the money. It was $250 in 1981 to do this. And it was the middle of the winter. And so I had the procedure. I had a wonderful doctor who is no longer alive. He took good care of me. He was kind. Jay went with me, held her hand, went through the whole procedure. And then when it was over and I went back home, that was sort of it. You know, Jay had a relationship that he had been in and out of. And he was like, look, I have to devote my life to this relationship. We can't do this anymore. And so I just felt like I lost everything. Like I lost, lost my innocence a little bit. I lost a little bit of self-worth I had. I lost someone I loved. I really loved him at the time. And I just, I just lost any sense of my life being okay. It was just one of those eye-opening, like, how did I get here moments? And I've had many of them in my life. And I remember going home and getting into bed and my bedroom was upstairs. It was like the master bedroom at the time. My parents slept in the basement and I got into bed and I didn't get out of bed for about two weeks. I just couldn't function. I got really depressed, like depths of depression. And my mother, God bless her, would, would just do everything she could to make sure I was okay. She wanted to be mad at me, but she couldn't. My dad gave me space, which was the right thing to do. The only thing I did was I got out of bed at like 10 o'clock at night, but running, I needed to feel okay. 
And so I cry because it's so easy to not love your mother sometimes. I remember I was running one time and I thought somebody was following me. She didn't want me to know that she was following me in the car, but she wanted to make sure I was safe. And so she would drive by me or drive a different way and I'd turn the corner and then she'd drive around the other way to make sure I got to the other end of the road. And she probably put 20 miles in the car watching me run a five mile loop, but she was afraid. I remember one night I had my lawns of Salzburg 90, this little flannel nightgown. I couldn't stand how I was feeling. And I walked to White's Park Airfield and sat on the bridge in that sub-zero weather. I had gotten a hold of some tranquilizer type pills. I don't know what they were. You know, I took a handful of them, not enough to kill myself, but enough to not be okay. Slept for a long time, days and days and days. So I remember my mother finally coming into my room and dragging me into the car and making me go to therapy. And so I went and I had some hypnosis, some hypnotherapy. My hypnotherapist in the ever never ending world of boundary crossing was my biological dad, Tom. His office is actually the same office I had my therapy in after Molly died. <laughs> I move out of a small town sometimes. And it was hard. I cried and cried and cried and cried. I, couldn't, I just couldn't function. I just felt like I deserved every bad thing that happened to me. We went through a lot. We, we actually dealt with the child abuse and we dealt with the science guy and we dealt with the pregnancy, a lot of it. And, and I really, really wanted to run. And we were able to take my running and use it as, as a goal for me to, to not die, not end my life. I never really wanted to die. I just didn't want to feel the way I felt. Feel like you want to die. Two weeks, I didn't go to school. Nothing. I, I got work brought home to me. I finally went back. Actually, I only went for this. I got permission to go to auditions for a spring play, which was not a musical. It was called Bus Stop. I did the part of Grace, Grace's Diner. We took it to the drama festival, to a competition. We did act two at the drama festival. And I got an Allstate Award. Actress Barb, my second play of my life. I remember going to auditions, the audition for the play, and it was all sorts of improv and different things. So one of them was sit, you run into someone you haven't seen for a while and you sit on a bench, you tell them what's going on in your life. And so I talked about being pregnant. <laughs> in my little thing, I, I said it was with a professor. Well, you know, you're taking so-and-so's class. Yeah, it's a, it's a big load. It's a lot to carry. And I said, well, I'm carrying his baby. <laughs> that was my like response to the, whatever the prompt was. I know this isn't making any sense now, but I told the story and didn't take rocket science for the adults in the room to know I wasn't making up the story. And I talked about terminating the pregnancy and what that was like and cried. Everybody thought I was the most amazing actress ever, but I wasn't acting. It was me telling my story in a way that I thought I could in theater. <laughs> so God, I didn't think this would make me cry. I had resolved now, get up and go to school. I wanted to be in the play. The play was unbelievably therapeutic. After that book again, and using theater to deal with trauma, I played Grace, who was this bus stop owner who has a relationship with Carl, the bus driver. And it was just the perfect role for me to play. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I loved it. I loved everything about it. And I was, again, hours out of my house and out of my head and out of my mind and not thinking about myself. I began running with a bit of a vengeance. Mr. Ludi, Coach Ludi, put together a, a plan for me. I trained diligently. I never missed a day that I was supposed to miss. I ran exactly what I was supposed to run. It was a six weeks, all of February, and two weeks of March. And I had the rest of January to dig myself out of that hole. And then February and March became getting ready for spring track. I wrote 4.56 on my wall in my bedroom. I wrote it on paper and taped it up there to the wall. Every night, I thought, all right, I have to get in bed by 10 o'clock. And I didn't miss my friends. I think the 10 o'clock at night part started with spring track. I wanted to break five minutes in the mile. And so I just made myself, I didn't drink a drop of alcohol when I was in bed. Digital clocks back then, they were like little 
it was like a little Rolodex, little plastic numbers. And they flipped over, flip, flip. They went click, 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 click. And you could hear them flip over. And so when it, whenever they clicked, when it clicks to a new hour, all four numbers clicked. So whenever I went from 9.59 to 10 o'clock, click, 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 they all clicked. And I would look up and I would see. So I got very trained to the moment it started clicking into 10, I just dropped whatever I was doing and jumped into my bed. I had everything ready. I brushed my teeth. I'd done all those things prior. So that when 10 o'clock came, I would just get into bed. And my friends were wonderful. My social life with them ended at nine o'clock and I got dropped off and they went out and did their carousing. Or we did afternoons, went to a movie and had dinner after, and then that was that. I didn't go to any parties. I mean, nothing. I really, really just wanted to break five minutes in the mile. And it was as much surviving as it was running fast. Mr. Ludi really took over my training. And I remember that created friction between science guy and Coach Ludi. And he would write training for everyone else and I'm doing my own thing. And I think you know, Coach Ludi is not a stupid man. And I think he caught right on from some of my drinking escapades and other things that I was not doing okay and that he needed to watch me. The end of February, actually, February vacation, there was a dance at the high school. And I had talked in the last episode about running into a wall. This one was worse. I went out with a group of people to drink before the dance and before beforehand with my own friends. Sometimes the only way we could get alcohol was to steal it from our parents. My parents didn't drink, so I could never provide alcohol. But you pour a little bit of vodka and then you pour a little bit, you'd mix it all together and then you would just drink it so that you would, could get drunk. But oftentimes that was a quick way to get sick. So that was what we had had to drink. And then I went out with a group of people that were sitting in a field outside of Runlet. This Bacardi 151, and I had no idea what that even meant, but 151 proof rum, that, that stuff would kill you. And so I took some of it. I drank some. I remember getting back to the dance and sitting in the high school gym and really feeling bad, like something's not right. And I went to stand up and I fell down. So I had some friends help me to the bathroom and and I sat in there and I just, I wasn't okay. Everything was spinning. So I opened the door and I'm like, I need help, I need help. And I sat down and I just puked and puked and puked. It was like my entire stomach lining, it was awful. And so everyone got really scared because I was not okay. And so they went and got Mr. Garrett, good old Mike Garrett. And he came down to the locker room and picked me up. Okay, Barbara Jean. And he had known me since I was little and he carried me out of that dance over his shoulder right through the lobby in front of the entire dance. And I was crying. And my friend Maggie was there. And I'm like, Maggie, no, because I hardly remember. The next thing I remember is waking up in the morning under the kitchen table in my kitchen. I'm still wearing my little L.L. Bean boots and I've got my sweater. I still have my pocketbook clutched under my elbow. I'm covered in vomit. And my mother <laughs> is asleep on the couch. I had been brought home and I don't remember. I remember Sue Louie was with us, Bridget. <laughs> that was a fun night. <laughs> and so... I was one sick girl. I was sick for days. I had to go to work. I had a shift at weeks and I showed up and I just looked so awful. They sent me home. That was about the end of that job. I think I was horribly sick, horribly hungover, and I was grounded. I remember my dad giving me a lecture about the rummies being the worst ones. But he basically said, the next time you go home like that, I'm going to kick your ass all over town until your nose bleeds. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty good threat from my dad about not drinking. That was how my senior year was, you know, I'd lived in this little bubble of perfection with running and, and everything was just new and wonderful, but things don't stay new and wonderful. You, you're going to have bumps in the road, just how it is. My senior year was the first of many bumps in the road as far as my running went. It was the first time that I really lost confidence in this area. Not the running so much, but all that went into being a good runner and all of the things in my life that were suddenly becoming problematic and drinking was one of them. Coach really took over the spring for me. He watched everything I did. He just just made sure that I was, you know, 
home. He called me on the phone. He called me on the phone after that dance incident because he had heard about it and just made sure that <laughs> he checked on me all the time. I was up at White's Park once sitting on a bench reading and he happens to walk by just checking on you. Why aren't you home? And I'm like, ah, it's just noisy there. I like to read. He really just took an interest in making sure I was okay. And the spring went along pretty well, <laughs> but not without bumps. So I was working at the long run, the running store there, and things with Jay were improving and we were sort of friendly again. He was no longer dating the woman he had been dating. Surprise, surprise. I think he also knew that I took a big hit emotionally and he was responsible enough to feel responsible about it. Everything was just sort of looking up. And then I caught a cold. And instead of, you know, paying attention and taking a rest, I just trained through it. And I got really sick. I got pneumonia, coughing up horrible green stuff. And all of April vacation, I was prohibited from running. I was so sick and I wasn't allowed to race. And I just thought, oh, my season is over. And this was the one time that Coach Ludi lost his cool a little bit with me. He was not, not happy about this. We had a plan. And how can you stick to the plan if you're sick? And so I snuck out <laughs> and ran anyway, took tons of medicine, drank piles of water. And it ended up being okay, but I had, I have a scar in my lung, my right lung. It was pretty severe. I wasn't hospitalized or anything, but I was very, very sick. May turns into June, the races are coming and the races are coming. And of course I have all of that pressure on me around Kathy Skiro and how she had beaten both Marty and I in the spring. I mean, in the fall, you know, I run the mile and Marty runs the two mile, but I also ran the 800 four by four. So I had a pretty big plate. And when class L's arrived, it's called Division One now, but when class L's arrived, it was at Winnicott High School, which is right on the seacoast. I was unbelievably petrified, just terrified. And we had to do a, they didn't do all the heats of the four by four at the end of the meet like they do now. They ran preliminaries and you made the final. And then the final six got to run again at the end of it. I had to run an all out 400 the first, the first thing I got there. The good thing about that is it took away, it edged off the nerves a little bit and I felt better. And then I remember I'm calling the mile and, you know, this was it now. I was, you know, I'm ending champion. She didn't run the year before. She's now on the starting line along with several other people that are good. I believe she had the fastest time going into the meet, but I'm not quite sure. I know that I was not seated fastest, which is fine, but I was afraid, but we had very specific plans and Mr. Looney didn't yell, he spoke. And so he would find a place on the track where he could speak to me and tell me what he wanted me to do. And so he found a place on the backstretch, which is across from the bleachers, and he stood and around we went. And he he was clear that I was not to lead this race. I was not to go out too fast. I was not to do anything foolish. The only time I needed to be in front of her was at the finish line. There's a lot of truth to this kind of racing, especially if you're like me, you have a good finishing kick. And she did not. But the race commences and we run the laps, run the laps. And so she was ahead. She led the whole way and I just hung on her shoulder. We we're running a pretty good pace, but it really felt too slow for me. And so I passed her on the back stretch. And took off on her. And I ended up beating her. I won the race. I beat her by three seconds. And I went too early. I went before the 200. And Coach Ludi was not happy about it. He didn't want me to go soon enough where I wouldn't be able to hold on. Or I wouldn't be able to run fast enough the whole way. If I slowed down at the finish because I had started sprinting too soon that she would catch. Kathy was many things. But she was not a sprinter and did not have a big kit. So this this was not problematic. But we didn't know that. Then I won the 800. And then we won the 4 by 4 And so it was, you know, joy and happiness all around. That was a huge relief for me. The very beginning feeling that I was okay, that I was going to be okay, that everything would be okay. Also all spring long, along with track and me finally beating Kathy in a race were all the things that happened in the spring. So, you know, all the senior activities and applying for colleges and hearing from the colleges. I visited URI, I visited UNH. I went with my grandparents to Rhode Island and I went to UNH by myself. 
I did not visit any of the other colleges that I applied to. I applied to a whole bunch of state schools, got into most of them. I applied to Penn State, North Carolina State, University of Vermont, UNH, URI, you know, schools around New England. I was recruited, but not as heavily as, as I might have thought. Another thing about my running and when I ran is back then, my times were hardly maybe top 25 nationwide for high school. Every year since I graduated high school, my senior year mile time would be number one in the country. I was in an incredibly competitive time. And so the really, really top-notch runners were getting all the offers and I wasn't. Marty, Marty Shea and I were both in that same boat where we weren't getting the offers we thought we deserved. I also applied to Brown University and I was accepted at Brown. There are times I think maybe I should have gone there, but you know, actually I don't at all. When I think of, I knew I wanted to be a teacher and BU has a great education system. I didn't even know I was, know of BU until Coach Ludi came up to me and said, one of my best friends from Somerset, Mass, John Simpson, is the athletic director at BU. Simpson called Coach Ludi, and so they arranged a visit. So they had rolling admissions then, so I could apply at BU all the way until summer. So I went for a visit with my mother. We drove down to Boston. Oh, I want a campus. I want a campus. BU had no campus. It has no campus. It's the city. The campus is the city. And so I had a visit. I met David Henry, who's a gold medalist in the Olympics. And I told him, I'm going to break five minutes in the mile. That will happen at the end of this year. We had this nice visit. He offered me a half of a scholarship. And I smiled and said, well, that's great. I'm not sure I could still afford to come here, but thank you. A student athlete liaison, Denny Benedict, came in and said, good news, the other half of your tuition is covered with academics. So here's a full ride offer. So I took it. I said, yes. So I came home that day, a full scholarship athlete to Boston University. All of these things are incredibly heady. Senior prom was coming. We called it the levy back then. You know, again, I was being interested in older men takes away any sense of normalcy around high school dating. And so I didn't have a high school boyfriend. I went to the levee with a good friend of mine who was also a runner, Tommy Johnson. So all of these things were also happening. It wasn't just me, the runner, and me getting over a very traumatic pregnancy termination and, and relationship ending, you know, wanting to die, taking pills, all the terrible things that had encapsulated the winter and early spring of my senior year. It was everything sort of coming together. And I, and I do feel as I continue to talk, that the salve that running provides for me, it's like lotion to my heart, it helped me out all spring as I was recovering, and dealing with all of the things that I had gone through. Now it's June, we're into June, and we have the state meet. And so I've run now 503 in the mile, and I want so much to break five minutes. I've written 456 on my wall, and the day comes. And it's a nighttime meet because SATs are in the morning. And so the meet is in the evening. It's at Memorial Field in Concord. We have just resurfaced the track, rubberized asphalt. It was like all the rage in 1981. And so here we were on the track and it was, it was incredibly nerve wracking. So I remember running the, the mile relay, the four by four and peeing my pants. And so I had my good luck underwear on. I'm not going to change those. I had to wear them. So I went to Suzanne's house with Suzanne. She lived walking distance from the track and we put them in the dryer and I dried my pee underwear and put them back on and went back to the track meet. It was just one of those things. There was this huge thunderstorm and then there was a break in the clouds and, you know, all in all, just a beautiful night. It was June 6th. So I ran, I ran the race and I broke five in the mile and it unfolded almost to the opposite of the week before. Another runner named Kim Koch took out the pace hard. I hung behind her. Kathy hung behind me in the same place that I had passed Kathy to win the race the week prior. She passed me and it was right in front of Coach Ludi, which could not have been more perfect. And he said, don't you react too quickly now. You know what to do. And I did. I let her go by. I immediately responded. Don't get me wrong. I went, I went and passed him in front of me. And so it was just Kathy and I and, and chased her down. 
And I passed her coming off the home stretch. And it was a move that science guy called the slingshot. When you're coming off the turn, you, know, you, you tend to look over your inside shoulder because you're turning left, you know? So you look over your inside shoulder to see if you can see anyone behind you. So I got out on her shoulder a little bit coming off the turn, a little, a little wide, and then just zipped by her. So we were stride for stride for about 30 meters. And then just about, just ahead of the 50 meter mark on the home stretch, I went by her. And that was that. And I ran 456.1. And it was probably at that time, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Understand people like me, people that have suffered the kind of abuse I suffered. Self-blame is all that happens all the time. What did I do to make this happen? What can I do to stop it from happening? What, what, what? And it's never the logical things like tell somebody or get help. It's always these internal things like, you know, wear different underwear or say your prayers more or eat all your green vegetables or keep your room clean. Like, oh, just the, the huge number of things that I had myself do to try to make things better. So this was just one of the most amazing nights ever. I ran well in the, in the 800 as well. And our relay team that disqualified me did not make it to New England. So that was the one sad piece of that night. The following week, David Hemery, the head coach at BU, came to the New England to watch, to watch me run. So I ran the mile and I got second and I got fourth in the 800 and I ran 457. So I broke five again, which sort of solidifies my ability to do so. And I ran 215 in the 800. So that was an improvement there. After the race, David asked me if I would introduce him to Marty Shea, which I did. And Marty called me later that day to say that she too would be going to be you. So we end up going to the same college. We were arch rivals. And the rivalry ended, you know, that was that. Of course, you're going to be arch rivals. We had a wonderful time at BU and those episodes would come. But I just remember school ending. And then Marty and I were asked to go to California, Los Angeles, UCLA to run in the nationals, age group nationals and USA track and field. We went, I got fourth and I ran 429 in the 1500, which was equal to a 449 mile. I don't think I could wrap my head around how fast that was. Keep in mind, two years prior, two years and 12 weeks, I ran 609 for my first mile. Two years later, I'm running 449. That was an incredible trip. We had a blast. We ran for kids. Head shoe company was trying to make a running shoe brand. Another J in my life, Jay Smith, arranged that. Timmy Reaver, I think all those guys worked for kids. Tom Dowling, it was a big kids phenomenon. And that was a wonderful time. And Marty and I really solidified our friendship then. I remember meeting a woman named Inga Thompson, and she became an Olympic cyclist. And my friend Sally Schlelli knew Inga because Sally was also an Olympic cyclist. And so it's just so funny how sometimes elite sports overlap. And Inga was a good enough runner to be at nationals, but a much better cyclist and, and had. Olympic fame there. So for all that my senior year started off with in terms of darkness, it certainly culminated and ended with a whole lot of light. Always with the good comes the bad in my life. And all of the tiny steps from entering Concord High School and meeting Mr. Smith to exiting Concord High School to graduating, being a full scholarship athlete going off to BU to, you know, getting fourth in the United States in my 1500 meter race. All of those things were profoundly mind-boggling to me at the time because I just didn't see myself as any of those things going into it. Running was the first thing that made me feel okay about my body. I've said that a million times. And those two significant relationships that I had in high school, one with science guy and one with running store guy, were so unhealthy. In hindsight, I just didn't have anyone giving me good guidance. And let me be clear, they were not abusive in nature. Neither Science Guy nor Jay were mean to me. They didn't say mean things. The relationships in and of themselves, in terms of how we treated one another, were fine. Jay really owned up. He came and spoke with my father, and look, I understand I'm older than she is, but I really care for her. We had the best time. He had a motorcycle, and we'd ride at places. We went to Portsmouth a lot. 
he grew up on the seacoast and so he was familiar with that part of the state and we went to fancy restaurants and we went on harbor boat rides and you know we traveled to road races and you know he would win and I would win we just did a lot of really really fun things together we chose races to run in together he became a big piece of my life for a couple of years there he was a very significant and turned into a much healthier piece of my life than he had been in the beginning but it was running it was all of it i have this memory that comes back to me sometimes when I'm talking about how good I feel when I'm running and you start to hear your breath and you can feel your heart pounding and you hear it in your ears and you're sweaty and your whole body is consumed with this feeling. But I remember as a little girl once, I was at my Uncle Jimmy's house in Pittsfield and they had just moved there and there was no lawn. And I was there visiting all my cousins and we were told we had to rake all the rocks so they could do sweet. And so I was all into it. So I, got, I just got into a rhythm. I just got raking and I got raking and I, I'd never felt... I never felt what I was feeling. I, I was out of breath, but I could breathe. I wasn't wheezing. I was sweating, hurt my arms a little. I could feel like my muscles burned, but I, I loved it. I loved the feeling. And I had felt that in a swimming pool, I think. And so I look up and all my cousins are gone. They're all inside watching TV. <laughs> and I ended up breaking the whole yard. I bring that up because it was the first time that I really felt connected to my body in a positive way. I reiterate these things again and again, because I don't know if you've listened to every episode of my podcast or if this is your first one. One of the biggest pieces of any kind of abuse, especially in either parent to child or relationship abuse, where the dominant person just treats the tender person terribly, the vulnerable person horribly. You're just left voiceless. You don't, you don't know what to do. And I would look in the mirror and have these amazing conversations with myself. Sometimes I would do them out running. I remember one time running up, running up Little Pond Road here, I was having a big argument with the athletic director at Concord High. And I look over and all these kids are staring at me in the yard. And I'm like, oh, hi, sorry, <laughs> because I, could, I can have these conversations. And then I get face to face with the person who's treating me poorly. And I'm, I don't know what to say. I, I sputter. I can remember that a lot with Roy. I can remember that a lot in several of the relationships I've had in my life where I just become silent. I don't know what to say. Even the ones where the relationships were just struggling, where there wasn't necessarily a domineering, abusive person. I've always had a very difficult time just saying expressing what I want. So I didn't know all that was ahead of me. I remember Mr. Ludi once saying that he, his heart's always broke for the female athletes when he compared them to his male athletes because they had no idea the heartbreak that awaited them. And you know, now that I know about coach's life and that he lost a child and he held his crying wife night after night as she sobs the loss of their baby girl, you know, I get it. I get it. He knew that, not that men don't have heartbreak as well, but when it comes to mothers and kids and all of that, it's just a bit different. And I, you know, left Concord High School in June of 1981, really thinking, okay, I've come through a really bad time. I'm okay now. It set me up for a good summer. I had a wonderful summer. I was working a million jobs, putting money in the bank, training, training, training. I wanted to go to school fit. I couldn't believe that I was going to be meeting Joan Benoit. She wasn't Joan Benoit Samuelson yet. She had not yet won a gold medal in the Olympics, but she was Boston Marathon champ. I went with Coach Ludi and a bunch of track team girls to the marathon in 1981. Coach took us down. We actually missed school. This is another thing that would never happen now. We went in his car. It was Coach Ludi, and then it was me, Suzanne Ward, Selena Adams, Karen De Palma, and I think Jenna Aldrich, five of us. And we went down and watched the marathon on Heartbreak Hill in Newton, right near Boston College. And then we had, we visited with his daughter, Mary, who lives nearby, and then went home. And it was just, I don't know why he brought us, but he did. We had a wonderful time. So I'll end here. This was the culmination of what running did for my high school experience, how running saved me from a really, really, really dark place that winter, how it opened up a world for me that I just didn't even know existed. It was a wonderful, 
just a wonderful time for me. Be good to yourself before you're good to someone else. Thank you for listening. Please keep listening. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.